Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my fantastic, fabulous co-host, Miss Elizabeth Woodson. Elizabeth, how you doing? Hey, I am doing pretty good tonight. Good. Yeah. Unfortunately, our other co-host, Adam Hawkins, is unable to join us for this conversation, but we do have a special guest kind of rounding out the show. Her name is Caitlin, and she is going to talk to us about some of our ideas in her new book, The Liturgy of Politics. So Elizabeth and I have both read and enjoyed this book. I'm looking forward to talking with her about it. Here we go. All right, before we get into the conversation with Caitlin, I want to give you a little bit of her bio. She is a faith and culture writer based in Dallas. You can see her work in places like Christianity Today, New York Times, and she's currently finishing up her THM right here at Dallas Theological Seminary. I say right here like I'm at the seminary, but here in the city of Dallas at DTS. Caitlin, what else are we missing on your bio? What do people need to know about Caitlin? Honestly, I'm pretty boring. I was thinking about this earlier and I have no hobbies. I really do sit around and read theology books all day long. Um, That sounds like a hobby. Isn't that a hobby? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's this C.S. Lewis quote I love where he talks about how if you're not getting anything out of your devotions, you should just take a tough bit of theology with a pipe in your hand and a, a pipe in your mouth and a pencil in your hand. I don't do the pipe, but okay. <laughs> I mean, if you did, no judgment. Yeah, I was really waiting for the corner there. Like, so I do it. Kind of, I have a habit. I can't stop. And, and this is my cry for help. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we're so excited to have you on to speak with us tonight about this. And uh, I, we, like I said, we really did enjoy your book. And let's let's jump right to it. What does that title mean? Let's start there. The Liturgy of Politics. Maybe give us a little bit of what, what you use the word liturgies. What do you mean? And then what is the liturgy of politics? Yeah, I keep joking with people that my publisher just thought we should put two of the most controversial words in the title, just li- right off the bat, liturgy <laughs> politics. Um, no, it's it's partially just using that word more broadly than just describing kind of church liturgies, but also describing generally the the formative habits and practices in our life, and especially the ones that are embodied and repeated and that draw on our emotions and kind of teach us values and a larger story for life. And then by broadening that out, not only saying, okay, there's all these other things in our lives that are more formative than we often give them credit for, but especially thinking about this in the realm of politics. I feel like there's a lot of conversations recently about you know, more general ways of thinking about spiritual formation and what are you kind of doing in your life that's repetitive, but then bringing that out and thinking about how that means that we have to think about politics. If it's this formative thing too, if it's teaching us these stories, if it's something that we might not notice that's shaping and forming us, um, then how do we respond to it in a way that's helpful and faithful? Because the answer is not to become uninvolved. We have to engage in this thing. But if it's if if it's going to be so strongly formative on us, then how do we respond? That's good. One of the things you said in your book is, uh, you talked about neutrality, like whether a church should be neutral on politics. And I, I love that idea of, um, of churches not being neutral. And, and it doesn't mean, uh, explain to me the difference between a church not being neutral and a church being politically affiliated with a party. What is, what is the difference? 
Yeah. So something I feel like I'm saying all the time to people is they'll say, you know, I love that my church doesn't get political or I'm worried about this getting political. And what they probably mean, or I hope they mean is that they don't want their church to be partisan. They don't want their pastor to get up from the pulpit and say, vote for this person, support this party. And nothing in, in my book or in the way that I talk to people about it says that should happen. But oftentimes when we say we don't get political, what we kind of mean is, hey, when the pastor gets to a passage on how we treat foreigners or how we handle our money or how we interact with people who are different from us, we have to be really careful and tiptoe around that so as not to offend anyone's political sensibilities. And and I would want to say that's an example of why the very nature of the church is robustly political, because we have these strong statements to say about how humans should live in the world together in community. And those are not neutral when it comes to questions in the political world. But that doesn't mean that we kind of say we take on the full identity of this party and we support them, whatever they do. It does mean that we're going to always be in some kind of contrast with any party or any politician. Um, But that's the balance between kind of not becoming so affiliated that you end up with an idolatrous relationship with a party or a politician, but not being so afraid of that that you never engage at all. And like most things, you know, there's tension on both sides and the easier thing would just be to pick one and go hard that direction. The harder thing is to kind of stay in the middle there and figure out how to be faithful and prophetic and, and not kind of give up the, the real witness that we have, even when it comes to things that might offend some people's, you know, political sensibilities. You talk a lot about the idolatry. Can you unpack that a little bit? And then I'll let Elizabeth jump in here. I'm sorry, I'm taking the first five questions. But uh, that idolatry idea of what you expect from an idol and what an idol expects from you and how that relates to politics, I thought was really good. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sometimes we use the the term idolatrous like really liberally. Like if you love something too much, like that could be an idol. And I don't know that that's really how scripture describes it. It really is not only something that requires sacrifice from you. And it's kind of like the hip thing to be like, oh, idols in the past required sacrifices. Now they're these other things. No, they still require sacrifices. It might not be the way sacrifices looked before, but if you really have an idol in your life, it means you expect it to provide a sense of identity and community and maybe safety, security. And in order to get that, you're going to have to sacrifice some things. And so politically, what tends to happen, especially for evangelicals in America, is you know, the Republican Party will protect us and we will be safe as long as we are willing to sacrifice anytime we might need to stand up and say, hey, you're doing something wrong or this politician's doing something wrong. We'll sacrifice, you know, our prophetic witness. We'll sacrifice really being faithful to what scripture says if we then get this kind of protection that we think we'll get. And then the way idols always work, you know, is you get less and less of what was promised you and you end up giving more and more. And then you wake up one day and and wonder why you've sacrificed so much because of that hold that, that has come over you. And if we thought about our political relationships as having that kind of potential, we might be a little more cautious in the way we engage. But we tend to go in and think, I'm the one in control. I can poke and prod, armed with my theology, and I'll be fine, and not realizing how powerful they are over us. I remember reading that um, part of your book. I also teach on, I'm teaching a lecture on the prophets <laughs> tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, Caitlin's going to show up in my lecture. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is, I think we live with this reality. I think Adam brought it up, or we're of neutrality that we are unaffected by the world that we live in and we can separate ourselves from it when we are very much affected by it and our inability to understand the water we live in creates all these problems that we see. So we don't see that we've given up ourselves to idols. We just feel like we're making the right decisions. And so you step through some aspects of politics or other gospels that we have 
connected ourselves to that make up the water of American Christianity. And so can you kind of walk through that, this idea of we do have liturgies, we do have aspects of politics that we are affected by, but we might not be aware of those. Yeah. And I love the way you said that because a lot of times I think people will come to these, I have these four political gospels and they'll say, well, I don't believe any of those things. And it's like, if you sat down and wrote a doctrinal statement, you're right, you wouldn't. But when the rubber beats the road, when you feel unsafe, when you feel insecure, when you're in the voting booth, like what's really going to be driving you? And it's usually these, these stories. Um, And so there's the security gospel that focuses on, you know, the highest good for both my nation, my community, and me as an individual is my physical security, which is a good thing, but it is not an ultimate good thing. And so when we're willing to sacrifice anything for that, that's negative. Um, The patriotic gospel, which is a rough one for a lot of Christians, um, because we have this kind of stories about our nation's history for Americans that have been woven out, you know, in the way that we learned things in school and the way we learned things in church sometimes that says, you know, our nation was founded as a Christian nation, which doesn't always reflect well on Christians if we're going to just claim the whole history of our nation. Um, But we tend to, you know, have rituals like, you know, football games, the music, the Pledge of Allegiance, the Star Spangled Banner and the fireworks and, and that draw, I mean, that is powerful in the sense of what it makes you want. I want to be a part of this. I want to love this. And it shapes you in a really formative way. And then the prosperity gospel, which evangelicals, I think we tend to look at that and go, oh, I know what that is. That's a televangelist with a jet. And and we don't have that, (laughs) you know, like that's them over there. And realizing that a lot of times in our churches, we still kind of have some sense that God owes us some level of wealth and health, as long as we are being responsible. If I, you know, have a good job, if I'm eating well, if I, you know, I deserve, even if I don't say it's God, if I say it's the free market, if I say it's the universe, if I say it's my safe community, they, they will give me what I deserve. And I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and all those kinds of things. And then the last one, the, the white supremacy gospel, which again, I really hope that no one's like sitting down and writing that as their doctrinal statement, but, but that comes in through the segregation of neighborhoods and schools and over time, the the stereotypes you learn through the media, um, all of those things end up in a place where there are biases and prejudices that you're unaware of that, again, you might not consciously say you agree with, but but when you're in a dark parking lot and someone that looks different from you is walking another way, what is your instinctual response for a lot of white Christians who wouldn't write down, you know, I think white people are better than everyone else. There's still are, are biases and prejudices that, that come up. And so the whole point of those gospels is not to say like, here are not the ways to think, because I hope no one's really thinking this way. It's trying to say when you're consuming media, when you're having conversations with people, are you able to see those stories that are underlying the things they're saying? When a politician gets up and says, support me or support this policy and the story they tell, the campaign ad they have draws on these stories, are you able to say, hey, even if I agree with you on this policy, or even if I agree with you on this particular statement, I can't as a Christian, because of my theological convictions, agree with a story about wealth or poverty or security that you're using to justify those things. And too often we just stay on the surface level of, do I support this policy or this politician? Not, is my support of those things forming me to believe this story that is counter to the gospel? I mean, I really loved how, as you're talking about I think the ways that we are usually formed, our focus is on an individualistic formation. Mm -hmm. You know, so you talk about our daily devotions, which are great, but it doesn't stop there. And so there are question as we walk through is is not in in some sense, what am I being formed into loving? Um, You quote James K. Smith um, a lot. Hopefully I said his name correctly. Um, 
But and we 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 get a lot of our stuff at TVC from that this idea of story and how we're being formed mm-hmm. and that formation um, um, being a process of our loves and what we're loyal to. Um, you mentioned a couple of kind of historical events, but are there some real key historical events that you can think of in the way, or how has a church historically struggled in this area? So some key kind of points along the way that you can that you can mention for us. Yeah, I mean, even pretty quickly within, you know, the third, fourth century of the church, just that advent of gaining some political and social power, or at least comfort that comes along with Constantine and and kind of the end of, of even sporadic persecution of Christians. Um, I'm in a class this semester where we've been kind of reading a lot of, of theologians at that time. And it's just funny how to people in our context, we think they're being so legalistic because we're reading like the Didache and it's like, do this with your money, treat people this way, have, you know, it's all these rules. And it's important to remember not only like the formation of a community, but then especially as we move past that document into later ones, having to deal with the fact that maybe now it's popular socially or politically for Christians to, to, for people to become Christians. And so all of a sudden this community that used to kind of count on the threat of persecution to ensure that if you were interested, you were committed. Now they've got all these people that maybe aren't, aren't really committed or being faithful in their lives and they're not being a good witness to the church. And, and that keeps coming up where when Christians collide with serious political and social power, there's always this belief that we can go into it and use it for good. You know, there's theologians in those first few centuries after Constantine where they're like, this is it. Like, we've got this. We're going to take over the world. It's going to be great. And again, it's that hubris of I will use power correctly. Other people haven't used it, but when I have it, I won't be affected by it. I'll be able to just use it to my own, for my own devices and realizing that it doesn't mean there can never be good uses of power. It does mean that you have to be cautious and go in with the humility to say, I will be formed by this. It will shape me. It will tempt me in certain ways. I mean, that's the story, like you were saying, of, of the prophets is people with power going, I can I can decide right and wrong for myself. That always happens. And so being able to recognize that, I mean, you see that even with Christians who throughout history, even including up into like the Nazi era, were able to just kind of allow things to go on that were obviously wrong, but they were in kind of a privileged position where it didn't affect them. And they had the ability also, not only because of this proximity to power, but because of certain theological stances that said we should be apolitical, we should be uninvolved. Those never really keep us apolitical. Those keep us kind of baptizing the status quo and saying, you know, we're not getting involved. That means we kind of are rubber stamping it. And so recognizing that every time we think, and this, you know, relates to how we are interacting now, every time we think, we'll have the power, we'll be able to change things, or we think we don't need to get involved, that's not our issue. Those are times when we've really failed politically. And we've also failed, I mean, more importantly, we failed to be a witness to the rest of the world of what the church is supposed to be. Um, So all of those situations are complicated. There's always good people trying to do good things, but um, to think that anytime we have power, we will use it correctly just because we're Christians is is historically wrong. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I hear you saying that I really like, and I want to maybe kind of restate this, clarify this, ask you about it. But it sounds like one of the things you're saying is that if we asked anybody who's a Christian that was a friend of ours or maybe one of the people of our church to write down a doctrinal statement about where their hope lies, they would say, man, my hope is in Christ. But if we said, okay, now let's walk through how you actually approach an election 
and uh, how you think about voting and why you vote the way you do and uh, the way you interpret these moments. Or maybe if we went back to the one you talked about, Prosperity Gospel, which I love the way you interpreted it more broadly in your book than just uh, the televangelist, but thinking about that uh, because of my behavior, it's unfair if I don't get what I've wanted or that my lack of health is suddenly... Uh, a curse, as if my my health that I had was was merited, and um, uh, and which we wouldn't say if you wrote down a doctoral statement, you would say I believe that God saves through grace and say you know we, we'd have all the kind of the Bible verses in place, but in our practical theology it, it might be different. And then you're applying it specifically to politics that you would think if I have voted the right way, I should expect a better outcome. If I have operated the right way, I should expect uh, what I want, or maybe even to say it. Um, in another Christian way, a lot of Christians think uh, the Christian should definitely be involved in politics, but really what we mean by that is vote every four years. And, and as long as we vote for a president every four years, we are kind of completing our, our Christian idea of, of being involved in the, in the, in the public sphere. And I, I love that because you're right. I think there's a practical theology that's not connecting with our our doctrinal statement. How do you, I mean, you work in a church, you, you help minister and shepherd uh, young adults. How do you think differently about that as you're helping them think through how their doctrine, and I mean, this is Elizabeth's world. She's a Bible teacher. How do you help people connect this doctrine to their actual practical way they live out that doctrine? Yeah, yeah. One of the questions that I get all the time from people at my church and people at the seminary is, I hate both of the parties. Who do I vote for? And that's like the extent of what they think I will be able to help them with. You know, you're the one who likes politics. Okay, tell me who to vote for. And I always will say the first thing right out of the bat is that you should not be thinking that your entire political work in the world is this one single vote every four years. Because if that's true, of course it will be fraught to the point of inaction. It has to hold everything you care about, everything you are, everything you want to see change in the world. Then of course you're going to be in this position where you're like, I can't vote for either. You know, what do I do? If you were to kind of take some weight off of that one vote and say, it's important, you should be faithful, you should do your research, you should, you should engage because I think we should. But but then you should say, not only are there so many important races down the ballot, I mean, I think the neighborhood I live in Dallas, thinking of the judges, the sheriffs, you know, all these people who I might never interact with, I have the privilege to, to pretty much be able to know I won't, but the most vulnerable people in my community, the people going to the community center that I'm going to vote at, a lot of those kids are going to have interactions with those judges or that sheriff, you know, they're impacted by that system more. And so am I putting the level of thought into those kinds of votes as I am this, you know, big presidential vote? And then even outside that, you know, am I engaging in my community for their for their benefit in ways that, you know, we would tend to think aren't political, but really are, you know, if the neighborhood next to you isn't getting trash service, you might go, okay, well, I'll go pick up their trash. And that would be nice. But maybe you have some resources and some authority that they don't have where you could call the city council. You could find the right, you know, person to send an email to, to try and get that structural issue fixed for them. And that wouldn't be necessarily the vote, but it would be some way that you're engaging politically. And so to answer the part about connecting your doctrine to it, one, I just think if you recognize that there are so many ways to engage politically, I think it takes some pressure off to say, I care about so many things because God cares about so many things. And so I can care about those in different ways and I can be kind of strategic and creative and faithful in all these different areas. Um, and then again, I, my focus with, with the women that I lead primarily is less on how can I give you a list of Bible verses? Because if they are formed by a steady intake of a certain slant of media or social media conversations, me giving them a list of Bible verses that say, these are the things God cares about, 
isn't, isn't really going to do much. If your heart's been captured by this affection for something else or this fear or this loyalty, that list of Bible verse isn't going to cut it. And so on a broader scale, I read a lot in the book about how certain practices and liturgies can hopefully, you know, get under the surface and change us. But on a really practical level with like, you know, I have like 15 or so women that I'm the most involved in their lives. For me, what that means is we're having one-on-one conversations that are not just about, you know, what does the Bible say about foreigners or money? We're having one-on-one conversations about what are you afraid of? Like, can we work through why your identity is being sort of, you know, hurt by these things you're learning? You know, I had a conversation with a woman who was really upset about some of the stuff happening around race in our country. And a lot of it came down to, she was literally alone in her apartment for weeks on weeks on weeks because of coronavirus, watching all this news. It was so horrible and it was, it was hurting her emotionally. But the way that that came out was, was not the way that we would want faithful Christians to respond in that moment. But instead of saying, here's a bunch of books or resources, which can be great. It was more about can we talk about why you had that strong of an emotional reaction to something? Like, can we work through like what heart issue is going on there? Because otherwise I might feel really good, you know, and, and like, I'm really enlightened because I sent her a list of articles or a book, but is that really going to create a possibility for her to better and more faithfully engage in her neighborhood and her community? Um, that's the kind of question that I'm, I'm trying to get at with them. Okay, Caitlin, I imagine people might ask you this on a regular basis, but politics is a fairly volatile world. To a lot of people, it's very off-putting conversationally. Now, the same may be true about religion. In a lot of uh, small talk worlds, people don't want to talk about religion. It seems like you have dedicated your life in some respects to both, both party-killing topics, religion and politics. How does that start for you? How, how do you end up with a passion for this and now an expertise in it? Uh, where does that kind of a passion, where is that rooted? Yeah. So I went to college uh, with uh, the intent of getting a government degree and going to law school when I finished and really thought that was my path and was really passionate about it. And then my senior year, I did an internship at a church and they just, I mean, not only were they a great example of really it not being an internal decision, but it really being people outside of me going like, you need to do this. Like this, we want you to go to seminary. Um, And then when I got to seminary, I really thought, okay, I'm done with the politics stuff. Like that's behind me. I'm doing the, the holier, higher work, you know, of, of ministry and pretty quickly started writing about politics. Cause it was the only thing I really knew. And I was, I was trying to get involved in writing. And then a friend of mine, Catherine Freeman, who at the time was working in kind of the political religious space in Austin, she invited me to this conference and I kind of thought, okay, I know what Christians talk about when it comes to politics. We're going to talk about abortion and we're going to talk about gay marriage and I'll go to this conference from my friend and it'll be fine. And I go there and there were workshops on putting restrictions on payday loan places because they were, mm. you know, really harming the, the, the marginalized, the vulnerable in communities. There were workshops on race and adoption and foster care and like all of these things. And it was so exciting. And then the last speaker at this conference was Dr. Vincent Baycoat, who's at Wheaton. And the whole time he was talking, I was just like, I didn't know theologians did that. <laughs> like, I didn't know that was something you could talk about but that's what I want to do. Like whatever you're doing, I want to do that. And so it was such a good, I'm so glad that one of the first times I went to one of those things, it was this different thing. Cause sometimes we're not very good at doing this and we do what I kind of expected. And this was just such a good, a good introduction to what really, you know, faithful Christians could be doing and also to what really good scholarship could look like when someone is serious about figuring this stuff out and, and thinking through it well. Um, and then I was just sort of hooked from there. That's awesome. 
Now, when you think about um, kind of this connection, really, this is the the theme you pull throughout the book of liturgy and politics. Um, where should our where should the weight of our focus be? Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of part of the heart of the book too. Is just there are less divisions between these things than we think. Um, and so a lot of times people will come to me and basically say, you want to make everything about politics. You know, you don't want us to do things just because it's the worship of the church and that, you know, that should be enough. Um, and for me, part of what, when I first started researching this stuff, when I first being passionate about it, what was so exciting to me was that that thing that I thought was lower than ministry work, you know, I'm leaving behind the like mucky, you know, work that everyday people have to do. And I'm doing the higher work of ministry, realizing that we were always intended to think about these things holistically, that Christians communal life together was always both individual and communal. It was always personal and political. It it couldn't be really separated out by the lines that people tend to create. And even the introduction of those lines between kind of public and private and all those kind and, and religious and political are pretty modern divisions between things. And so we can't assume Christians have always thought that way. They haven't. They've tended to see those things as connected. And so I get a little bit uncomfortable when people will say like, okay, but isn't it really about worship of God? It's not about how we live on, you know, how, you know, it's like, you want me to choose between things that I don't think we were ever supposed to choose between. I think our worship was always supposed to be a witness to people. And our witness was always supposed to be a worship and that they're not supposed to be divided in that way. And I don't want anyone to read the book and think, okay, now everything I do has to have some kind of consequence of political action at the end. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, maybe if the worship and practices of the church aren't resulting in a faithful life in the world, including in the political world, then maybe we're doing something wrong because God has given us his scripture. He's given us the community of the church and the history of the church's practices. And historically they have allowed us to live faithful lives in the world. And so if they're not, maybe we need to ask some questions about how, how we're doing them. I think that's one piece that I appreciated I've said a lot of piece I appreciate it. If y'all don't like it, no, by now I really like the book. Um, but it's the whole story of scripture. And so you take us back even to um, the covenant that God makes with Noah, that creation itself would flourish. And so that the way that we engage um, with each other in our religious practices is interconnected with how we engage with the world around us. And it was that way from the very beginning um, that we've been given the task to steward um, this gift of creation. And that even though we know that perfection will not come until Jesus, that that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to do our best to still push forward the world that we, the task that we have been given. Um, and so, you know, I think as I asked you that question, like I was hoping that you would point that out. Like there is, the weight is interconnected. Obviously, the po politics aren't always our focus. But if we live in a world and are unconcerned about our neighbor um, and our neighbor is directly affected by politics, um, and that is very diverse in how that happens, then we need to be able to check our ability how faithful are we to the things that we say we believe? And I think that's something that Christians are experiencing now is that we're trying to protect doctrine that the world says, well, you don't live out the doctrine you're trying to protect. Um, and so these are some really basic things that flow out in complicated ways, but just a really, it's the integrated nature, nature of worship. Worship is not just ritual. Worship is how we live our lives Sunday to Sunday. Um, and that includes politics. That's excellent. Can I can I throw a quote out from your book that I'd love to have you unpack? That's very it's connected with what Elizabeth's talking about too, which yeah. is great. But you said that understanding our churches as a training grounds for engagement with our communities will change the way we worship together. 
And I'd just love to hear you unpack a little bit. What do you think a church looks like that is a training ground for engagement and community? Like what, what are the practical things that, that you would say? It, because a lot of people listen to this podcast are going to be pastors, they're going to be ministers, are going to be teachers, and they may nod along with everything you're saying and then go, okay, so now what do I do? How do, how do we foster a training ground for community engagement? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I start off with that sounds really basic that might be kind of like, oh, we already do that. But again, it's it's more how are we communicating the how, why we do the things we do and how are we doing them? So the, one of the early chapters is about communion and baptism, which I had to be really careful about because I wanted people in all sorts of different traditions to be able to like be a little discomforted by it, but also see themselves and how they practice it there. Um, but really to say, are we really treating these as means through which we place obligations on other people and commitments to a community. When you are baptized, is there really a significant sense that you're you're sacrificing some things? You are not your own person anymore and you are taking on the obligations of your community. And when someone in your church who is suffering, who is facing some structural impediment to their flourishing, you feel an obligation to engage, not just because you want to play around in politics, but because that's your family member who is being harmed by that policy or that person or, or that condition in their neighborhood. And so that, you know, provides right from the get-go. Are we communicating? Are we practicing baptism in such a way that it isn't just an individual thing? You know, the language that I grew up with was, this is a public declaration of your faith. And it was really just about, did you feel something inside? And do you want to tell people about it? Not, you are part of this community now. You have a loyalty to them that surpasses your loyalty to people that, you know, live next door to you and look like you. And then you're going to have to vote, including everything else you do in your life, but that includes voting with those people in mind. And those people aren't just the people in your local church. That's the people throughout history and around the globe that are part of that community of God. And then the way that you're practicing communion, is that teaching you a reinforcing of that sense of community and, and caring about the needs of each other? And then I give some examples of, of spiritual disciplines and practices the church has always done. Um, but again, ones that we sort of have twisted throughout history. So things like hospitality, which is just an incredibly dominant theme throughout scripture. And yet we tend to use that word and say, usually like the women's ministry will throw like a really beautiful dinner. And that's so fun. And you should totally still do that. But really, if that's about not only creating relationships with people who are not like you, are you creating opportunities in your church for individual say, I'm inviting my neighbors and I'm, and I want to have a relationship with them in the sense that I'm not just you know, giving them charity and they're always in the position of being beneath me, but also, you know, we're building a real relationship. You're going to bring food that I have never eaten before and I'm going to eat it and we're going to have a conversation about it, but also without it feeling like it's a transaction, you know, I give something and you give something back to me. And so are we kind of practicing things like that? Or even one of the examples I give that, that makes some people uncomfortable are things like the church calendar. Are we really fostering a sense that the rhythm of our life and the way we mark time is different from the world around us? It's not, you know, football season and the Hallmark calendar kind of holidays. And it's not the consumeristic Black Friday and all that kind of stuff, but it's, we have a rhythm to our life and it shapes the way that we interact in the world. And so part of the reason that the book doesn't get particularly prescriptive about, you know, pastor, here's how you should, you know, do things in your church. Partially is I'm young and I'm not trying to tell anyone exactly what to do, (laughs) but, but also... But also I want it to be applicable in different contexts. And so the real goal of the book is, hey, let's describe these practices and and the worship of the church in the best light, in the most hopeful, faithful light. And then hopefully that will kind of spark some questions. You know, does our way of practicing these things not look like that? And is there a reason, you know, that we could actually change that? Not 
just to kind of pump out the right kind of people, but because it would be more faithful to how the church is supposed to supposed to act in the world and act as a community internally. Um, and so how everyone answers those questions is going to be different, but my hope is that it kind of pushes some people to ask them. Well, not knowing how old you were before I read the book, your book does not read like you're a young, naive person trying to tell people what to do. <laughs> uh, well, I'd love to give a chance. Uh, Elizabeth, any final questions or final thoughts? Or Caitlin, any final things from your book that you didn't get a chance to talk about either way? I, mean, I think um, uh, something that was interesting at the end is your um, work with Augustine. Um, and confessions and city of God. And so you end by talking about eschatology. And so just something, you don't have to tell us all the things because if people need to buy your book to read the things, um, but just what can Augustine teach us about political engagement as Christians? Just maybe one or two nuggets that stand out for me from the work that you've done studying him. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things that he really gives a picture of is recognizing that we cannot have God's perspective on history. And so we cannot claim to know either the success or failure of the work that we do completely or the significance of certain events. And so when someone says, this is the most important election of your lifetime, <laughs> even without Augustine, I feel like we should all be able to say like, you can't know that. That's impossible yeah. to know that. But he especially, he describes, especially in City of God, goes through these histories of the city of God and the city of man. And part of what he's kind of trying to do is say, you know, we can see faithfulness and we can see, you know, sin and destruction, evil, but we can't chart kind of from the perspective that God could of what these things will be, right? So the, the Roman Empire, they thought that they were really successful and what was hiding underneath was a lot of destruction and death. And so for us to take just our particular moment in history and be able to decide what's working and what's not, and then having a very pragmatic focus on those things um, is not how Christians are supposed to interact. If you were in a high position in the Roman Empire at the time, you probably thought things were going pretty well. And maybe you weren't aware of some of the destruction that was happening. And so his real focus on not only can we not know, we don't have that kind of perspective, but we as Christians are not constrained by pragmatism. We are resurrection people. And so we don't have to be swayed by threats of, you know, existential doom or the end of our life or the end of our way of life, which is more often the threat we're afraid of. Uh, we don't have to because we believe in the resurrection. And so we can fight for the vulnerable people in our communities and what they need without having the threat of our own livelihood kind of take precedence in the way that we do politics. And he's a great example of that. I mean, one of my favorite things about Augustine is that he was writing letters to government officials who were trying to kill people who had persecuted Christians and writing letters and saying, don't kill them. I want them to repent. I mean, these are people that he would have every reason to say, yeah, go kill them. I mean, they killed Christians, go kill them. And he was like, I want them to have a chance for repentance and forgiveness. And that's the kind of like sacrifice for the sake of other people and showing the world you can kill it. Like, we're not afraid. We will be faithful to what God has asked us regardless of what the threat is because we have the hope of the resurrection. Amen. Yeah, we do. The book is The Liturgy of Politics by Caitlin Shess. And uh, I'd encourage you, go pick it up. Uh, Elizabeth and I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I know politics is top of mind for a lot of people, but it is faithful to the word of God through and through, top to bottom. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett and produced by our friend David Rohr. If you like what you heard, you please give us a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram or support us on our patron page at patron.podbean.com slash culture matters. Thanks. God bless. Thanks.